Hey, this morning, uh, our lesson is in Luke chapter 23. So if you would turn there with me, Luke 23, and we're going to verse 33. If you would stand with me this morning as we read Holy Scripture together. Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 33. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. It's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So today uh, we're encountering what is hopefully a familiar passage for you. I mean, this is a significant climax in the life and ministry of Jesus, his crucifixion. Uh, And in considering the death of Christ, as I said earlier in the service, we are also wrapping up what is known as the liturgical year. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with that terminology, uh, this is also often simply known as the church calendar. It's like the arrangement of holidays and holy days and feast days throughout the year. The church calendar is not a new concept by any stretch of the imagination. It's at least 1,700 years old. And as you might suspect, it centers primarily around key moments in the life of Jesus, such as his birth, his death, his resurrection. And over the years, times of fasting and feasting, times of celebration, times of contemplation, they've become a part of the life and practice of the church. Things like Advent, which I mentioned earlier, and Lent, which comes before Easter, like prepare our hearts to worship the one who was and is and is to come. So we look to this calendar as a guide for our worship, and and I think it's especially important in our postmodern, relativistic age um, that we would actually double down on the fact that our faith is actually ancient. So we're not doing something today that we came up with or that our grandparents or great-grandparents came up with. Uh, we are participating in, in like this grand host of saints who have come before us, the church, followers of Christ, who have given their lives and their hearts to Him in faith. And um, this isn't something as a result that can just be changed by the whims of culture, even though people may try. Um, and I hope, that, I hope that you find some comfort in that fact. I hope that you find some comfort in the fact that this is something that is steadfast and unchanging. So interestingly, the church calendar does not begin on January 1st. It actually begins four Sundays before Christmas with Advent. 
And even though that might seem strange, it's actually very appropriate. It makes sense that we would effectively start at the beginning. And the beginning is not necessarily Jesus' birth at Christmas, but it's the great swath of time that came before Christ. The time in which people longed for a Savior. So Advent, which begins next Sunday, is all about that expectant longing. Yes, it's about looking back to the fact that Jesus came, but it's also about looking forward to the fact that he will return and set all things right. So today is known as Christ the King Sunday, which is kind of funny because every Sunday is Christ the King Sunday. But this is a day in which we remember and celebrate the fact that Jesus is not only our Savior, Jesus is King. Jesus is a King who reigns sovereignly over a kingdom. And that so much of what Jesus came to do was to bring about his kingdom. So much of what Jesus talked about regarded the kingdom. In fact, Jesus' basic gospel message was that the kingdom of heaven had come near in and through his incarnation. The fact that he was born. The fact that he stepped out of heaven and became a human being. That in and through that, the kingdom was coming near but that ultimately one day it will come in its fullness with his return. And as a result, our primary allegiance is not to a country or a flag or a president, but as followers of Christ, our primary allegiance is to a sovereign king and his eternal kingdom. So it's only appropriate that on the last Sunday of the church year, right before we enter into the season where we anticipate his coming, that we would consider the fact that we have this hope not simply because Jesus was born in a manger, but because he died and rose from the dead. Without the resurrection, Jesus is not king. If Jesus was only born in a barn, but didn't die and rise from the dead, then he is not king. This is why the cross is the central symbol of the Christian faith. It's not just good marketing. On behalf of followers of Christ, it is this implement of death that actually brings us life. I love the words of John Stott in his classic book, The Cross of Christ. Here's what he says. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain... How could one worship a God who was immune to it? I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, his arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, face detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I have to turn away and in imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of this. But Stock goes on to point out, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Before we can see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done 
by us. Jesus didn't simply die. He was murdered. And while historically you could say, well, it was the Jews or it was the Romans, it was those people, it was those people, we have to recognize, especially at Christmas time, that Jesus was born to die. Jesus came with the intention that this would take place and that it wasn't nails that really held him to the tree. It was our sin and rebellion and what he was accomplishing through his death and resurrection. So in light of this, here's what I hope we don't miss today. The, the thieves that hung next to Christ are incredibly significant because they are us and we are them. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that those two thieves didn't really exist or that this is just some kind of allegory where the characters represent something else. No, I'm saying that Jesus was dying for the very people who were crucifying him and the very people who hung next to him in the same way that he was dying for us. And these two men, you see the only two real responses that we can have towards him. The only two real responses that humans can have towards Jesus. Either one, we recognize our own sin and the fact that we deserve death and in helplessness cry out to him and place our faith in him. Or two, we mock and ridicule, and ridicule him and imply he's a liar either by literally denigrating him or by simply denying and ignoring him. Those are really our only two options. When we get down to it, those are the only choices we have. To borrow an image from Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats, we are either on his right or we are on his left. I guess on his right or on his left. How we respond to God on the cross is of paramount importance. You know, many people think, you know, if I'd been there, I would have believed. If I'd heard the words of Jesus, I would have believed. If I'd seen the miracles of Christ, I would have believed. But can I be honest? I'm not sure I would have. I'm not sure I would have. If I were an educated Jew, having grown up with stories of the coming Messiah, I very likely would have also seen Jesus as a liar and a blasphemer. While there are many Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, we read one of them earlier in our service in the book of Jeremiah. While there are many Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, a common theme is that the Messiah will be the new David. That he will be the new King David. He will be of the house of David, both literally and figuratively. That he'll be like this great earthly king. When you read the prophecies and you read about a king that's coming and he's going to be after the, the line of David. And he's going to be like David, but greater. You just think, man, this is going to be an amazing military leader. He's going to establish this earthly throne. He's going to reign like no other king has ever reigned. Jesus simultaneously fulfills all those prophecies and yet looks nothing like what people expected. He's backwards. He's a backwards king. Rather than being born into wealth and nobility, he's born to a lower class teenager with a blue collar earthly father in a barn. Rather than pursuing political power, Jesus instead speaks of the kingdom of God. This ethereal thing and he calls people to live differently. And to live even in contrast to the established religious norms of the day. Rather than amassing a rebellion with thousands of people, he willingly gives himself over to his enemies. Rather than ascending to a throne, he ascends to a cross. And rather than cursing his enemies as they murder him, he fulfills his own teaching by praying for them. 
David was a good king by most accounts, but, but this is no David. So I don't know that I would have recognized him, maybe. Even his own disciples weren't so sure at this point in the story. Most of them had deserted him or betrayed him. However, one person did recognize him. A, a thief. A common thief. One of the Gospels refers to him as a robber. There's been some attempt within history uh, to personalize the thief who confessed Christ on the cross. He's actually a saint in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, in fact, it was believed that his name was maybe Dismas, um, even though the source of that is sketchy at best. Uh, in Spanish, he's Saint Dismas or San Dimas. So there's San Dimas, California, a suburb of L.A. that's named after this guy, the thief on the cross. But it's far less important that we actually know his name. Um, it's way more important that we follow his example. I said before that there are really only two possible responses. Either you confess Christ as king or you mock him by denying or just ignoring him. Notice that virtually everyone in our text today mocks him. Look at verse 35. The people stood by watching but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. Isn't that amazing? That they're, they're actually affirming that he saved other people. Right? It, it's irrefutable at this point that the blind see, that the lame walk, that the dead have been raised, that the hungry have been fed. Even these guys, as they are mocking him, can't deny what he has done. Can you imagine the callousness of their hearts? He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Which you might think, man, that's just, it's just they're going to great lengths to mock him. Which there is an element, I think, where they were intentionally seeking to be uh, condescending to Christ by putting something like that up there. But yet it was common practice that the charges that had been levied against somebody being executed would actually be nailed above them on the cross. So that's the charge here, right? Is that he's claiming to be king of the Jews. Remember, this is why Pilate is so confused. When the Jews actually come to him and bring Jesus, they, they go, what in the world has this person done? That's their answer. He's claiming to be a king. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. All but one. All but one person in this story. Moxon. You know, you don't follow a backwards king by just doing what everyone else is doing. He's not like every other king, so why would his followers be like every other king's followers? Following Jesus, guys, is an act of cultural subversion. It's, it's about going against the grain. You also can't simply base it on your feelings. Our culture tells you to base all of your decisions on your feelings. But you can't do that when it comes to the way of Jesus because it doesn't always feel right. 
Many of us will choose comfort or security over the way of Christ every time. You have to base your decisions not on how you feel, but on what is true. An enduring biblical metaphor for me is that of the Israelites in the wilderness. So these guys have been saved from Pharaoh. They've been saved from slavery. They have been freed from Egypt. They have seen the decimation of Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. They're in the desert. And guess what? Even though they've been saved, life does not magically become amazing for them immediately, does it? No, no, no. They're, they're out in the desert. They have little food, at times no water. And much like the first thief, they rail at Moses. Like, who are you? What kind of leader are you? You don't, you don't really hear from God. You brought us out here to die. It didn't feel right. They're actually longing to be back in Egypt. They're going, remember, like we, we, we actually had food that was cooking at the end of the day back in Egypt. Forget about all the slavery stuff. We're glossing over that. Remember the pots of meat? And yet they've been freed, but it doesn't feel right. We have to realize that because our nature is sin, right? Because our very nature is sin. We feel much more at home in our sin. Way more at home. It actually feels more right to us in some instances. That's why when we're stressed or when we're anxious, many of us run toward our recurring sin because it, it's what feels most comfortable to us. Right? That's why we run towards anger or sex or drugs or alcohol. Or, I mean, whatever it is for you. We think we're going to find some peace in that or some comfort or some satisfaction in that. This is displayed in an almost absurd way in the first thief who is literally hanging there dying, but he chooses to spend his time ridiculing the person hanging next to him. This is the world that we live in. Every day we walk amongst and work beside people who are dying and don't realize it. And rather than seeking to discover truth in real life, they choose to spend their time following their feelings and the whims of our culture. And many of us, rather than giving them the truth of who Christ is, rather than seeking to model the way of Jesus in front of them, we choose comfort and social security over that. We have to be a backwards people following a backwards king, not basing everything on our feelings, but betting everything on the truth and sufficiency of Christ as our sovereign king. This is the second thief. Is he guilty? Yep. Yep. Is he condemned? Yep. Is he dying? Yep. But he does the one thing that no one else does in this moment. He confesses Christ as Lord. He actually defends Jesus in front of everybody. And he humbly asks that the creator of all things would simply remember him. That kind of vulnerability, that kind of helplessness where you know 
you know there's nothing you can do. Right? There's no way that you can fix this situation as you're hanging on a cross dying. There's no way that you can save yourself. The reality is for each and every one of us, that's the truth in every moment, every day. We are dying. And there's nothing any of us can do about it. But there is hope if we will turn to Christ and confess Him as King, give Him our faith, give Him our very lives. So this morning, on this Christ the King Sunday, let us also together confess Jesus as Lord of all. And let us humbly come to His table as His children. Let's pray. Our Father, we give You honor and glory. We recognize that the things that we read in Scripture are not just stories. But they are a source of life and truth. That real life is actually found in Your Word. And that faith comes somehow through hearing Your Word. Father, I pray today as we, um, as we prepare to enter into the season of Advent, God, that you would prepare our hearts for this time. As we get closer to Christmas, it would seem as if our culture finds its hope primarily in materialism, and acquiring more and more stuff. Many of us are burdened with hearts that don't long for you and your coming kingdom, but primarily long for the things, the material things we don't have. Father, would you change our hearts? God, in this time of year, would you give us the grace to model lives that display to other people the fact that our hope is not found in the next uh, rung on the ladder or new stuff or some new title, but that our hope is only found in you and that we are a people who are waiting and expectantly longing for the day when you will set all things right. And in the midst of that, we thank you for Christ, for the truth of the gospel, and for for the fact that you loved us enough, even in our sin, to send your only son to die so that we might find real life. The real life that the thief found your paradise. We love you, Father. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.